0: Lone Star One Eight Seven is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Lone Star
0: Case file 08. The Waco 3.
1: Welcome. Hello. Hello, listeners. Where are we this week? This week, we're in Waco, Waco, Texas. The Waco, Waco, Texas. Yes. What are we calling this one? The Waco 3. The Waco 3. It's a pretty sad one. I don't like it. It but is a
0: sad one. And still. one that I never heard of. Have you heard of it? No. Nope. And this was one that we found while
1: researching another case, right? Mm-hmm.
0: These are the best ones, I think.
1: I found this one on the same site where we found Douglas Feldman, and that's on the Murderpedia. which just got a lot of good content in there. It does, yeah. So tell me the story.
0: On July thirteenth, 1982, in Waco, two fishermen are just out looking for a place to fish. Around 6 o'clock, they see a body sitting at the foot of a tree. The person is wearing sunglasses. They have a hat on, wearing a shirt and jeans. As they're walking up, they're like, this has to be a prank. It's late at night. This guy's just sitting on the tree. They think maybe it's a mannequin or maybe he's drunk. It's never a mannequin. No. No. It was a young man wearing an orange shirt, and as they get closer, they realize that he's gagged and his hands are tied behind him, his chest is full of stab wounds, and his shirt is covered in blood. He turns out to be Kenneth Franks, who had been reported missing the day prior. He was last seen with two girls from Waxahachie, a Raylene Rice and Jill Montgomery. And as the two fishermen continue walking, they see something ahead, past Kenneth, And it ends up being the two girls. About 75 feet away, laying in the grass, was Raylene, who had been stabbed repeatedly. And she was naked, except for a bra that was tied around her right leg. She was gagged. Her hands were behind her back with shoelaces and strips of towel, along with the other girl, Jill Montgomery, she was near Raylene, also naked, bound, and gagged, and both of their throats were slashed. Mm. Obviously, the two fishermen are extremely terrified, so
1: they call 911 to send the police out. I read that one of the fishermen was the son of the county sheriff's constable. Oh,
0: I did not know yep, that.
1: That's what I read.
0: So it's a gruesome sight, obviously, and the police end up finding out that they were stabbed 48 times. They had other abrasions and weird-looking marks on them. They described the scene to be sadistic and cruel and possibly tortured. So these poor girls, yeah, they were, the girls, yeah. I believe, were 17. Kenneth was 18, right. so the boy was the oldest. And mm-hmm. these poor teens yes. just went out for a night of fun and ended up being slashed.
1: Jill Montgomery met Kenneth Franks at a place called the Methodist Home in Waco. uh, And the administrator of that agency, his name is Jack Daniels. Wow. So Mr. Jack Daniels says that the children are there because they're having difficulties living with their families. And they come there to live with them so they can work with them, as well as the families at the same time to kind of get stuff solved. Maybe it's problems with drugs or whatever. I think it could be a multitude of things. Mainly, I think the parents are at their wits end, and they just need some help. And they don't really want them to continue on the path that they're on. When they turn 18, they get released back to their parents. So Kenneth was there for two years. When he turned 18, he was released to the custody of his father. So I guess his mom and dad were divorced. Kenneth and Jill were both juniors at Waco High School. Jack Daniels described the two as friends, though nothing special. He said not even boyfriend and girlfriend that they knew of. Jill lived at the home nearly a year and was released from the school on July 10th, only days before she had died. They said that she'd made considerable progress while she was at the home. She was planning to move back with her mother in Waxahachie. In the summer, she worked as a tour guide at the Fisher Museum, which was there in Waco. Each of them were placed there voluntarily, both on the teenager and the parents' part the parents were just seeking help for their children and so Raylene who was the other girl that was found she and Jill were friends from Waxahachie for years but she had not lived at the home they were only friends from high school and they said Raylene was a straight-a student both girls liked to go to rock concerts which you know that's cool I would have hung out with them for sure. Raylene's friends described her as an attractive girl with long blonde hair and a captivating personality. Jill was also described as attractive with dark brown hair and eyes and an ever present smile. So that's the background information I have on them. The girls were together because Jill was trying to move back to Waxahachie with her mom. She was currently going to Waco High School, so she needed to transfer schools and she needed to go pick up her last paycheck from the museum that she was working at. Mm-hmm. Raylene's little sister said that the two girls met at Raylene's house about 1 p.m. and then drove to Waco and her sister Raylene's orange pinto. Her sister, Renelle, was quoted as saying that that was the first time her sister had ever gone to Lake Waco. They went to the lake a lot, but they usually just stayed right there and walked the hatch. I guess there's a lake there too. Mm-hmm. And they would go swimming and skiing almost every day. She said, When she left here, I didn't know they would be going to Lake Waco. She was my best friend. She did everything for me, and I'm completely lost without her. Mr. Franks said that he expected his son home at midnight. He said the two kids were very responsible. They always let us know if they were running late. When he left, he told his dad, what time do you want me to be in? And he said, you better be in by 12 because you have to be in summer school tomorrow. He was a student at the university high school, I guess, because he'd been in the home. Maybe he got behind on school. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Or probably failed, who knows. So at some point, Mr. Franks is starting to get suspicious. He said that he was nervous when his son didn't show up. He almost always called when he ran into trouble. Mr. Franks woke up at 4.30 and checked his son's room and he wasn't there. So he decided to get in his car and drive to Cohen Park where he found the orange pinto, which he knew belonged to Raylene. He notified the police, let them know that they were missing. They were found in Spiegelville Park and the pinto was found at Cohen Park but they're like across the lake from each other, right? Yes, and I have a map, and I circled in red. Right. And that was one thing the
0: detectives were confused about. The car was on one side of the lake, the bodies were on the other, and there was no
1: boat for them to been moved from one side to right. the other. No one saw them either. He said they probably went there to talk and drink beer, but something happened. And they said that there were two beer bottles were on the ground next to the Pinto. One empty and one half full. And Mr. Franks was telling the news people, you know, we're going to bury Kenneth on Saturday. He started staring into the carpet and said, then I'm going to go to his closet and give away some of his clothes. Give a stereo to his little brother. And then I'm going to try and put my life back together the best I can. God, I can't imagine. Because that was their only child, right? Yeah. A few days later, they're asking him questions. And he says, can you imagine a more horrible death to have your hands tied behind you, dragged away, stabbed, and then have your throat slashed? The people that did this is insane. Sergeant Bob Fortune at this point is saying about all we can do is dust the outside of the car for prints unless we get a witness. So there isn't a whole lot of evidence at this point. Yeah, because even around where the girls were found,
0: they said that there was no fingerprints on the body. The cans that were around them had no fingerprints on them. They weren't able to find any DNA on them. The grass around where the girls were was flattened which told them one of two things either someone was on top of the girls assaulting them or they had been dragged from one place to the other because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of blood Yeah they So they very... felt like maybe they something happened in another spot and then
1: they were they're taken there're pretty there. sure it didn't happen there
0: the initial reports in the newspaper said that the girls were not sexually assaulted. But then when the medical examiner saw them, they said they had been sexually assaulted. But at the crime scene, there was no sign of any sexual assault taking place there. So they didn't think that that had happened at the time. Oh, well, they were nude. Why else would you? Yeah. And the guy's killed too. And he obviously isn't naked. Why is that? It doesn't make sense. Freaking perverts.
1: Another sergeant, Dennis Kidwell, says he's been working there for 17 years and never heard of anything like this before. It's easily the worst murder case we've ever investigated. Police speculated the three of them may have been killed elsewhere and their bodies dumped near the lake.
0: When I read that the Emmy did their autopsy, the stomach contents of Jill and Raylene was one food. Kenneth had different food. Right, because he had gone to eat with his dad. Because he could tell that all three of them ate between 6 and 6.30 p.m., but they didn't eat together. The girls had pizza and Kenneth had hamburgers. Mm -hmm, hamburgers, And so they couldn't find any food place in the area that sold both of those items in the same restaurant. So that's kind of how they set part of the timeline, which is really gross, but really cool. Yeah,
1: that is cool but you're right it's gross they were really disappointed at the lack of information that they found out there all they can say right now is they have three bodies and that's it they had no murder weapon and they said robbery was a motive because one of the victims was found wearing a diamond ring they didn't say which one
0: yeah and jill also i think was found wearing her high school ring and she was the one who had just graduated
1: almost a week later they finally get the autopsy report It reveals that both Jill and Raylene both suffered vaginal abrasions and bruises, but tests to determine whether or not they had been raped were inconclusive. Franks was stabbed once in the neck and 19 times in the chest. Montgomery was stabbed or slashed once in the neck, 14 times in the chest, and once on the hand. So they were saying that her hand wound shows that she was trying to defend herself, which that kind of stuff makes me want to cry more. Raylene was stabbed 10 times in the chest and once in the neck.
0: So with each one, it got less. They started with him and they did a whole bunch. And then they went with her and it was less. It makes sense why they would get rid of the guy first, right? Because he's the one that's going to protect them. And then Jill was probably with him because they were closer. And then Raylene is probably trying to get away.
1: Yeah. They determined that the weapon that was used was a five inch knife with a single edge blade. They also revealed that they had eaten within an hour of their deaths. And the PD at this point had had quite a few calls, but no leads. One call was from a Ute. Sorry, it's a call back to a movie. That said he saw Raylene's car in Cohen Park at 1015, but he wouldn't identify himself. At that point, they had a $5,000 reward for any information on the slayings. Look get this. I don't know if you read this or not, but at the end of July... There is a council meeting, and on the agenda is closing Cohen Park. Mm. Yeah. So they charged that this park was being used for drinking, drug trafficking, rape, and murder. So Councilman Gary Cook asked the closing of the park be put on the agenda. Uh, And he was saying, I wanted it to be an open hearing for visitors to comment. He was suggesting that they close it at sundown and then open it back up at 4 a.m., So that people can still go fish. A different councilman said, the conduct in this park is very respectable. Why single out this park? Just close all the parks. (laughs) When you close this park, they're just going to go somewhere else. Because they went to the park when we closed Parkdale Shopping Center. The murders did not take place in the park, although it might have started there. A lot of back and forth on whether or not it should be closed. It seemed like a pretty hot topic. One of the councilmen is saying, I'm in favor of closing it shut down, and opening it early. I have no problem with closing the park. If the problem does move to another part of the town, we'll just deal with that. And so finally, somebody with sense says, you know, closing it will not solve the problem. We're just moving this problem from place to place. They really couldn't come up with a decision. They finally just said, we'll talk about it next hearing. And they decided not to let the public in there because they didn't want them to have a vote on whether or not it was going to be closed. They wanted to be able to decide on their own. I don't know ultimately what the decision was. It's still open as of today, right. so, but I don't know if maybe it closed for a short time. I don't think it did. It didn't and maybe say. if they put some lights in there, you know. Well, and I think the other thing, they, they wanted the police to have more of a presence there to try to deter any really bad behavior. So they did some of the one councilwoman said, uh, the police are doing a good job in policing the area and I am not in favor of closing the park. When you close a park, you are closing off a privilege. It is one of the nicest parks we have here in Waco. I guess they didn't close it. That's what we're thinking, right? Mm -hmm. We're at the end of July now. Policemen are seeking help from the public. So they hear a story of five people believed to be on a picnic in the park about 9 p.m. The only information they got that it was a white pickup with the name Charles printed on the side they said this truck was seen at the park around the same time as the victims. And at the same time, they were trying to develop a psychological profile of the killer or killers. And, of course, when they got that information, they were going to release it to the public. And they also did the toxicology, but they don't have the results yet.
0: At the end of July, there was an article that said that crime was up 24.4% compared to the previous year. I read that. And that in July, which the murders happened on the 13th. So Here from we the are beginning, again. In the summer in Texas.
1: So just be careful in the summer.
0: Yeah. So listeners, you killed. have, let's see, we're in, we're in a nice, well, this week is pretty freaking cold. Mm-hmm. About to be in March. So we have another good three months till you guys need to stay inside. Don't go to the park. Don't have affairs. Stay away from pipes. Unless it's July 4th. We'll, we'll be good July safe. 4th. Yeah, because nobody does anything. <laughs> Justice is closed
1: on the 4th. Except for partying and drinking and barbecuing. Um, they and said
0: as of the 13th, five murders had already occurred prior to the three murders. So by July 13th, eight people had been murdered already. That in July, rape was up by 50%. Oh my Robbery was up 38%. This is why they call, nickname it Wacko. They have to. It's crazy. Assaults were up 39%. Burglary was up 41.9%. From January the 1st till July 13th when these murders happened, 17 murders had occurred in the first seven mm-hmm. months of 1982.
1: Compared to only nine. In the year before. Yeah, that's crazy. I
0: don't know what it is about summer the early in 80s Texas. in the summer and people killing each other. Hide your kids, hide your wife, <laughs> killing everybody up here.
1: And the toxicology test did show that there were no drugs or no alcohol in their system. None of them.
0: So that would make sense why those beer cans didn't have any of at least mm-hmm. their fingerprints on them. Fast forward to September 13th mm-hmm. of 1982. A Munir Mohammed Deeb, who is a deep bag, we've decided. He definitely was
1: a deep bag. Uh,
0: is arrested and charged with the murders. Uh, Elisa Cater... She is 17 years old. She lived at the Methodist home with Kenneth and Jill.
1: Okay. And
0: she goes to the police and she points. See, Dave. I
1: didn't have any of that in my research. So,
0: that's so she goes to the police and points Deeb out and said he didn't like Kenneth and he became very, very angry anytime I saw or I spoke of Kenneth in his presence. Deeb was 23 years old. He was a Jordanian Mm -hmm. immigrant, um, and he ran a Rainbow Drive-In, which was a convenience store across the street from the Methodist home Mm -hmm. that Jill and Kenneth lived in, and this girl Lisa Cater. He walked with a limp and went by the nickname Lucky. Mm -hmm. Deeb and Kenneth apparently did not get along. They had many altercations. Kenneth had shouted obscenities at him inside his store, called him Abdul, and made fun of his limp. Why are you laughing? That's rude.
1: I was laughing at the way you said Abdul.
0: I don't know why they would call him lucky if he had a limp. Is that why they called him lucky? (laughs)
1: It's not very lucky to have a limp. Maybe he's lucky to have a leg. (laughs) 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 I don't know. (laughs) I'm just guessing. (sighs) Okay. What what now? Where were we? Uh (laughs) Fuck.
0: The source of conflict between Kenneth and Deeb was a girl by the name of Gail Kelly. She mm-hmm. was 16 years old, and she also was in the Methodist home. And she went to the Rainbow Drive-In many times, and she was offered a job by Deeb to work the, the, there.
1: The Rainbow Drive-In? It's a grocery store. I don't oh. know why they call it the drive-in. But a gay bar. It sounds it, like a gay bar. <laughs> well, the owner's name is Deeb. He goes
0: by Lucky, and he has a limp. <laughs> he has a limp, Deeb? It's a limp deep,
1: why didn't I get that? Yeah. I was he has a limp deep. <laughs> nice, we're off track, way off track. So,
0: Deeb apparently had a crush on Kelly, but she liked Kenneth, which obviously made Deeb hate Kenneth more. But Kenneth liked Jill, true, but you know, yeah, he's not very lucky. So, <laughs> so when Deeb heard that the murders had happened, he laughed and said he was glad that Kenneth was dead. He got what he deserved. That's what he said. So one piece of information is that Gail Kelly, the 16-year-old that Deeb fancied, and Jill, who was close to Kenneth and lived at the Methodist home as well for some time, looked very similar. And a lot of people thought they were sisters.
1: People got them confused when they would go to the Methodist home. So
0: Kelly, Gail Kelly, calls the investigators and says, I think he did it. I think Deeb killed at least Kenneth, and killed the other girls because they were just there. And they tell her to calm down. We've already arrested him. Take deep breaths. You know, it's it's okay. But why do you think this? You can't yeah. just be because of that. And she said, the night after the murders, Deeb took me and a friend to see a gory movie. And afterwards, he said, wasn't that cool? I did that. What? I've done that. I killed people just like they did last night, which was the night of the murders. And they hadn't been found yet. At least if they had been found, they had been in a movie and they didn't know, the girl Mm -hmm. and her friend didn't know that Kenneth and the girls had been killed. So they're like, this guy's crazy. And then he apologized and was like, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But how they reacted is kind of why she felt he said he was just kidding. And then the next day they find out in the newspaper
1: that Mm -hmm. night they
0: found, you know, so obviously she was very, very scared. Of course. So, when they arrest Deeb and they start talking to him, of course, he says, absolutely not. I have nothing to do with it. So, during the interrogation, introduce a very salty investigator. Oh,
1: salty person
0: of Ma- the episode. Mr. Truman Simons. During the interrogation, he makes a breakthrough. There's a man by the name of David Spence who had been arrested with a Gilbert Melendez for cutting a teenage boy on the leg while forcing him to perform oral sex on Melendez. So, he Bastards. starts... He starts putting all these pieces together while he's interrogating Deeb. And he spoke to Jill's mother, Nancy, and her Aunt Jan, and they revealed this theory that they felt that Gail Kelly had been the target of these killings. If Deeb was the one that, in in fact, did it, he had no qualms with Jill. He had no problems with her. He didn't know her, really, except that she lived across the street. Mm -hmm. But he had this infatuation with Kelly. And Kelly and Jill looked just alike. So they felt this was a mistaken identity and they attacked Jill and Raylene and Kenneth had just been at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Two weeks before the murders, Deeb took out a life accident insurance policy on Gail Kelly that paid Mm $20,000 in the event of her accidental death enlisted himself as her common law husband. You are so dumb, Deep. How do, how do you, yeah, so I'm just married to this person. I don't have to give you any proof that I'm married to them. not. You don't guess need not. a proof of residency that we are common law or the fact that the person even knows that we're
1: supposedly married. Don't we know by now? That's the big red flag when you take out a random life insurance policy. Because usually you're planning something. And then you only get out a $20,000 policy. Maybe that's all he needed. Maybe he's not greedy. $20,000 is a lot of cash. To kill someone for? Well, no, not in my opinion, but I'm thinking I'm lucky deep. I
0: mean, 20000 may cover a funeral. May. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So his family hires a lawyer and pushed for him to have a polygraph test. So for three hours, they do testing, and they come back and say, no deception. He's telling the he truth. Passed. He has absolutely nothing to do with these murders. He's innocent. Truman Simons and his colleagues, they hear the polygraph, And his colleagues are not surprised because they feel like Simons is a little cuckoo and he's made up this giant theory and he's wrong. But Simons is devastated because he feels like something isn't right here, but I know that I found the right people. But a little
1: backstory on him, he's like a bulldog. Like he has this intuition about cases and has a really good record of closing cases fairly quickly because like he's just knows where to go. It's like he's just he, like, listens to his intuition. Right, and he goes to the crime scene, and, and and you know how you see on CSI where they're, like, visualizing what happens? He can kind of do that. hmm Takes that and goes with it and is able to solve quite a bit of crime. So he's going on the same thing that he's gone on in all the other cases, so. So Deeb is released from jail.
0: I mean, lucky. now, even if, <laughs> I guess he is a little lucky. So Simons does not detour from his original thoughts of what happened. He's like, I'm going to see it through. I know, I know he's part of it and I'm going to prove it. Deeb's lawyer asks Simons, so is he still a suspect? Because he's passed the polygraph. Simon says, uh, you're damn wrong. (laughs) He will be a suspect until I say he's not. So Simon calls the sheriff's office and he requests if there's any openings as a jailer. Do you want to know why he wants to go work as a jailer? Does he want to get close to Deeb? He wants to get close to David Spence. Oh, Spence. Yeah. Yes.
1: So oh, because Spence is in jail. That's right. Deeb gets... Yeah.
0: So he's going to take a pay cut where it's almost in half just to go be close to David Spence because he feels if he can go in there and get the information, Deeb is... He's it's
1: going really, really above and beyond the case to get information, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. So he takes a cut in pay. Because David Spence was in county jail awaiting his trial for aggravated sexual abuse. So does
1: he tell his boss why he's quitting or he just quits?
0: He just requests a transfer to the jail to not be an investigator. He needs time away from this awful murder because I really thought I had it and I guess I didn't. So let me just go do this, right? So he just slides over, takes a little demotion, slides over. He goes to the jail and he meets with David Spence for the first time and he said he was very nice. He was very easy to talk to, very easy to get information out of. And so Simons tells Spence he was quitting the force. He's not going to be an investigator anymore. But Spence at this time has no idea that he's even a suspect. He thinks that he's just in there for sexual abuse. He has no idea that Simons is looking at him for the right. week three. So he tells Spence, I'm going to go here. I'm going to help the officers with other open investigations. But, you know, I'm just, I can't do it anymore. It's a hard life. And so during the time of the murders, Spence had been working at Burke's Aluminum, which was next door to the Rainbow Drive-In. Oh.
1: And Spence's girlfriend,
0: Christine Jewell, worked in Deeb's store. And Spence had spent hours there playing video games. Simons asked Spence, hey, you know, could you just ask your girlfriend what the word is on the street? Because I know that the Waco 3 hung out there a lot. And so maybe maybe someone's heard something, just so I can give these guys something, because they're on my ass. Right. And I'm, I'm done with it, but they still want me to give them information. So Spence is like, yeah, you know, I'll see what I can do. Spence had grew up poor. He was a middle school dropout, and he loved beer, marijuana, and amphetamines. He okay. said if he could marry anything, it would be those three and a pill. That's what he would marry. He got married wow. at 16 and was a father of two by 18 and then divorced by 20. He robbed a Fort Worth convenience store with a hatchet at 21 and served 15 months. And when he got out, he decided... The biker life was for him, so he got tattoos of Dice on his right arm and Harley wings on his left. Now he's in jail at 24, and he started telling Simons all about all these adventures he'd been on and what he'd done and where he'd been. And because he had been in jail for a while now, and obviously he doesn't get a lot of free time, he loved to talk to Simons. And he, Simons would tell him some cases he worked on, a lot of them were made up, just right. to keep Spence's attention. Mm-hmm. So he carried on this job as a sheriff's deputy, working the graveyard shift from midnight to eight. And he and Spence would have regular conversations. Sometimes he would even bring up the Waco 3 case. He would get really excited about talking to Spence would like light up when he even brought it up. Or if Spence would bring it up, he would just get excited about talking about it. Simons would allow Spence to have long phone calls to his girlfriend, sometimes at three or four in the morning. But she never gave any good information. But he did it wanting Spence to trust him right. and befriend him when really he's trying to get information. Afterwards, um, Spence and Simons would sit and talk about life, love, God, all kinds of things until the sun rose. Spence's corp appointed attorney left school three years prior and told him to stop talking to Simons because cops were dirty and they would do what they needed to get information. And Spence is like, he ain't like that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I want.
1: Right. I don't believe you. You're an and attorney.
0: Spence's father asked Simons to hire a lawyer for his son, since the court-appointed attorney was only three years into it and mm-hmm. didn't think he was going to do well for him. And so Simons tells him in his salty breath, "He doesn't need one because he hadn't been charged with murder." Okay. Spence didn't think he was a he was a suspect,
1: so he wasn't worried about it. Which is a good place for him to be for Simons, anyway. Yep. Right. So um, early October they decided to bring in a Dallas psychic who had cooperated with the uh, Waco police in the past. So they took him to the lake and he said he had some definite feelings about the deaths but they wouldn't go into detail about what kind of information the psychic gave but evidently the psychic gave the police some information. The name of this Dallas psychic is John Catchings and a couple of years before this happened They led the Navarro County officials to the body of a teenager who had been missing for four months. They had worked with him in the past and it had worked out for them. So a man rides into Kerrville on a bus from San Antonio claiming that he's killed four or five people. He also confessed to killing the Waco 3. He also claimed that he had been the driver of a vehicle that hit and killed one or more pedestrians. Somewhere in Texas.
0: Because, you know, Texas isn't that big. Yeah,
1: you know, just somewhere. I I can't be more specific than that, so that's enough for you. Police Chief Scott Evans said this man actually walked into the police station about 9 or 10 p.m. and confessed to several killings in Waco. Kerrville Police notified Waco police and said, Hey, you know, we have a guy you probably need to interview. And he said uh, the reason why he confessed is because he had gone and talked to the Lord and the Lord told him that he needed to confess to these murders. How about that? He said, I killed those three kids, but they didn't have any evidence. There was nothing to prove it. Uh, and they questioned him about the details of it. And he couldn't give them specific information about what they knew they found. So they had to let him go for that. I mean, he got convicted for the murders they could pin on him. There was no proof, um, and he didn't have enough information for them to say that he actually killed the Waco 3. But he was charged with the other murders that he committed.
0: So in January, Simon's patience finally pays off, and an inmate, Kevin Michael, told him that Spence had bragged about killing the teenagers.
1: Oh, and shit. And
0: Michael gave Simons corroborating details such as how Kenneth had been bound with shoelaces and Raylene had a bra tied around her leg. But that was in the newspaper. That was not in the newspaper. Not which, We read it. But not like which leg and the shoelaces. The specifics of the shoelaces and the bra and which leg was not in the newspaper. Okay, so he gave details about
1: it that weren't and how, released. And
0: how it was on her leg. Okay. Ugh. And Spence suggested that Gilbert Melendez was his co-perpetrator in the abuse case. That's his friend who Mm -hmm. was going to force that boy to have fellatio with. More inmates came forward with things Spence told them. Like he had a satanic cult and that he he was going to be paid to kill the teens, but he killed (sighs) the wrong ones. Which Which corroborates mm -hmm. his theory of having the wrong girl. And that some foreigner named Lucky had paid was going to pay him to kill the three because a girl had dishonored him in his own house. And he considered the rainbow in as his house. So Simon is on cloud nine, right? So it's he goes straight off. to the DA, Vic Faisal, mm-hmm. and he is not there when he runs when he runs to the courthouse he's not there, so he has to talk to the ADA. And he he said This is what happened. And the ADA is like, you know what? That's hearsay. The inmate testimony is going to be inadmissible in court anyway. He was livid. Mm -hmm. So he went back and he's like, you know what? I'm going to get this out of Spence. I'm going to just going to get it out of him and they're going to have to charge him. So that night they start talking and Spence told Simons that he may be like Ted Bundy with a split personality and quote unquote chili was his evil half.
1: Oh. But he just couldn't remember
0: killing anyone and started to wonder if it was possible if he had really done it. Simons goes to him and says, like, is it possible? I know you love to get high. I know you love to drink. Is it possible you got drunk and maybe raped some girls and, like, left them? And maybe somebody else came by and killed them? Or maybe you raped them and somebody you were with killed them? Maybe maybe y'all had consensual sex, but... Like, give me something, because some of the things you're telling of the other inmates doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying, like, it's possible.
1: Maybe I really did do it. I just don't remember. Simons feels like he's getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. The investigators travel to San Diego to question a guy by the name of James Russell Bishop. He was a former Waco resident who moved to California last August. He was in jail uh, for charges of attempted murder, rape, and kidnapping. The reason that the investigators went to California is possible similarities between the California case and the Waco 3 murders. At the time of his arrest in California, do you want to know what he was driving? A white pickup that was similar to the one that was seen in Cohen Park where the people Mm. that were picnicking, remember?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So in March, the DA announces that he's going to start a task force. Oh, okay. And he wants to take a new look at the Waco 3. He basically calls Simons and says, you're the lead task force. Like, I've, I heard what happened with Spence and what he said. I need you off the jail and back on the force. Like, you've gotten enough evidence. You've played deputy sheriff enough. I need you back on the, on the force. Mm-hmm. So, Simons starts to work on Gilbert Melendez, who had served time in the 70s for assault with intent to murder. And he had been given seven years after pleading guilty to a sexual abuse case. Spence had been found guilty that month, just a couple of days prior, uh, and given 99 years because of the sexual abuse that him and Melinda are some did. some
1: shady, shady dudes. Why were so, they ever out to begin with?
0: he had to stay in jail and then would get, would have to give Simon's information on the way any, any questions he had on the Waco three, because he's not going to get out. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. 99 years. So at this point, even if he did admit to the murders, what does he have to lose? I mean, he's going to be in jail the rest of his yeah, life.
1: That's true.
0: Gilbert denied any involvement in the, in the lake murders. He said he never, he never did it. Um, he began to admit he was there and stated he would testify against Spence to avoid death penalty. But wouldn't give any testimony. So he's like, I want a lawyer. I'll testify against him, but I'm not going to tell you what I know. Just, I'll see you in court, basically. Mm -hmm. So Simons basically tells him, if you don't want the death penalty, you got to talk. That's how the plea works. You don't get to hold all your information in your head till then. I need to know now. So he starts talking. He's like, don't talk. Let me go get my tape recorder. (laughs) So he goes and gets his tape recorder to get Melendez's testimony. And this is what Gilbert Melendez says. He states that he and Spence have been riding around in Spence's car, drinking, smoking, listening to music, and they pull up to Cohen Park. And there were some kids that Spence saw, and he said that the two girls enticed him a little bit. They looked very enticing. Mm -hmm. So he tried to convince the girls to get in the truck with him, if he would, they would. he would drive him around and give him beer and let him smoke weed in his truck. Little did he realize, when the girls walked towards the truck, so did Kenneth, which he didn't realize at first. And mm-hmm. he's like, we're going to have to get rid of this guy because there's only two girls and there's only two of us. Yeah. So he said that they drove to Splegalville Park, on the other side of the lake, and that Spence raped and stabbed Jill. Then he raped and stabbed Raylene and made Kenneth watch while he was tied
1: up oh, and then man. killed Kenneth and then dumped them closer to the lake. So, but that, the evidence doesn't back that up because there's not enough blood evidence at the park. Well, he said that the... they,
0: they left the park, but he doesn't say where they go. He says they left the park and they were driving and then he, they got out. Spence raped them both while Kenneth watched and then... Then went back to the park. Then they then they dropped him at Spiegelville Park. And then they went home. That's what he says happened. But again, just like what you said, there were some inconsistencies to the testimony. Like Spence's car, um, Gilbert states that they were in a station wagon, which is impossible because Spence bought a station wagon two weeks after the murders. So there's Hmm. no way they could have been in a station wagon that hadn't been purchased yet. Right. At the time, he had a truck, a white truck.
1: Oh so, a white truck. A white as well. truck.
0: So there really isn't any way he could have been in a station wagon. And even like there's a picture that I'll post. It doesn't even really look like a station wagon.
1: Because when you say station wagon, I think the Griswold mm-hmm. family truck stuff. That's what I think. And right? it's like
0: it's like, like a mini version of that. So Simons went back to one of the inmates, asked him, like, is there any way that you can find out about Cohen Park and Spliegoville Park? Like, could you just Find some ideas, just throw the names out there and see what happens. Because these timelines aren't really adding up. Mm -hmm. He thought maybe, well, they're drug and alcohol addictions. Maybe their memories are spotty. And so they're trying to fill in blanks that don't make sense. Then towards the end of Melinda's statement, he noticed that he was blaming everything on Spence. Like Melinda's was just like standing there watching, but he didn't participate. And when he asked him, well, did you help the girls? Like, were they screaming? Were yeah. they crying? Were they asking for help? And he's like, I don't know. I was smoking a blunt. Like, you didn't hear anything over the... Well, we know Jill has a defensive wound on yeah. her hand. So clearly she was trying to defend herself. But then he... So then he took two polygraph tests. And the questions they asked him were if he was involved. And he failed, stating that he was involved. So he easily answered them, but he was involved. So then he recants his testimony thinks he can go home and they send him to jail. (laughs) And he just doesn't understand why he has to go to prison if he didn't do anything wrong. Because he thinks he passed with flying colors when clearly he
1: did not. There was
0: deception. Yeah, April the 8th of 1983. So Simon's receives a visit from Ned Butler, who's the ADA, who tells Simon he just walks up to him, makes eye contact with him and says, soon. (laughs) And walks away. And he he, he knows what that means. So later on that day, Butler calls him in and says, it's time. So he goes to the courthouse and Butler has, he is described as having a giant smile on his face (laughs) because he was a big believer in forensic odontology, which is, for those that don't know, is the study of bite marks. He had solved a violent crime in Amarillo where the killer bit his victims. And when Butler first saw the Waco three, he asked, did you check the bodies for bite marks? And after setting the autopsy photos, he requested for them to blow up certain parts of the bodies. For example, both girls' nipples apparently have been bitten off. Oh they also God. had bite off. marks on their stomachs that from a distance just looked like stab wounds. They weren't stab wounds. They were bite marks. So when the pictures were blown up, Butler was able to tell that these were indeed bite marks. He requests a mold of Spence's teeth and requests for the photos to be sent to a forensic odontologist in Albuquerque who found it was his teeth.
1: Why didn't they do bite marks of anybody else? Were they sure it was, they were that sure that it was Spence? Like they didn't get any from Gilbert?
0: Well, yeah. and well, I think they could tell by looking at his, and who Spence was and yeah. how he bragged about the murders. That most likely he was the main perpetrator. Especially I Gilbert. if it
1: didn't match, they would have continued with yeah. other people.
0: Um, Simon and Butler jump, literally jump for joy in the room <laughs> when they show that they match. So now we have a new suspect added to the trio.
1: So David Spence, Gilbert Melendez, and? Deep. Deep.
0: Got it. Next suspect is Tony Melendez, who is Gilbert's younger <laughs> brother. He's 24 and he was wanted... <laughs> for robbery and rape. Telling you,
1: these are some shady ass dudes.
0: He was taken into custody and questioned about the late case. About the Waco 3 and his brother's involvement. Thinking, well, maybe his brother told him something. He may not be involved, highly unlikely, but maybe, maybe he's not. 20 minutes into talking to him, they knew he was a part of it. Go ahead and put him in a cell. Give him time. And he he just keeps repeating, no, I was in Bryan, Texas, painting apartments the day of the murder. That's where I was. I don't know anything. I was painting apartments. What apartments? I don't know. I was painting apartments. What color? I don't know. I was painting apartments. That was his answer, answer. to everything. Surprise. He failed his polygraph.
1: Hmm. So um, early October, they decided to bring in a Dallas psychic who had cooperated with uh, Waco police in the past. So they took him to the lake and he said he had some definite feelings about the deaths, but they wouldn't go into detail about what kind of information the psychic gave, but evidently the psychic gave the police some information. The name of this Dallas psychic is John Catchings. And a couple of years before this happened, They led the Navarro County officials to the body of a teenager who had been missing for four months. They had worked with him in the past and it had worked out for them. So a man rides into Kerrville on a bus from San Antonio claiming that he's killed four or five people. He also confessed to killing the Waco 3. He also claimed that he had been the driver of a vehicle that hit and killed one or more pedestrians. Somewhere in Texas.
0: Because, you know, Texas isn't that big. Yeah,
1: you know, just somewhere. I I can't be more specific than that, so that's enough for you. Police Chief Scott Evans said this man actually walked into the police station about 9 or 10 p.m. and confessed to several killings in Waco. Kerrville Police notified Waco police and said, Hey, you know, we have a guy you probably need to interview. And he said uh, the reason why he confessed is because he had gone and talked to the Lord and the Lord told him that he needed to confess to these murders. How about that? He said, I killed those three kids, but they didn't have any evidence. There was nothing to prove it. Uh, and they questioned him about the details of it. And he couldn't give them specific information about what they knew they found. So they had to let him go for that. I mean, he got convicted For the murders they could pin on him. There was no proof um, and he didn't have enough information for them to say that he actually killed the Waco three. But he was charged with the other murders that he committed.
0: So in January, Simon's patience finally pays off and an inmate, Kevin Michael, told him that Spence had bragged about killing the teenagers. Oh, and shit. And Michael gave Simons corroborating details such as how Kenneth had been bound with shoelaces and Raylene had a bra tied around her leg. But that was in the newspaper. That was not in the newspaper. Not which, we read it. But not like which leg and the shoelaces. The specifics of the shoelaces and the bra and which leg was not in the newspaper. Okay, so he gave details about it that weren't and how, released. And how it was on her leg. Okay. Ugh. And Spence suggested that Gilbert Melendez was his co-perpetrator in the abuse case. That's his friend who Mm -hmm. was going to force that boy to have fellatio with. More inmates came forward with things Spence told them. Like he had a satanic cult and that he he was going to be paid to kill the teens, but he killed (sighs) the wrong ones. Which Which corroborates mm -hmm. his theory of having the wrong girl. And that some foreigner named Lucky had paid was going to pay him to kill the three because a girl had dishonored him in his own house, and he considered the Rainbow Inn as his house. So Simon is on cloud nine, right? So it's he goes straight off. to the DA, Vic Faisal, mm-hmm. and he is not there. When he runs when he runs to the courthouse, he's not there. So he has to talk to the ADA, and he he said. This is what happened. And the ADA is like, you know what? That's hearsay. The inmate testimony is going to be inadmissible in court anyway. He was livid. Mm-hmm. So he went back and he's like, you know what? I'm going to get this out of Spence. I'm going to, just going to get it out of him and they're going to have to charge him. So that night they start talking and Spence told Simons that he may be like Ted Bundy with a split personality and quote unquote chili was his evil half.
1: Oh. But he just couldn't remember
0: killing anyone and started to wonder if it was possible if he had really done it. Simons goes to him and says, like, is it possible? I know you love to get high. I know you love to drink. Is it possible you got drunk and maybe raped some girls and, like, left them? And maybe somebody else came by and killed them? Or maybe you raped them and somebody you were with killed them? Maybe maybe y'all had consensual sex, but... Like give me something, because some of the things you're telling of the other inmates doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying like it's possible, maybe I really did do it. I just don't remember.
1: Simon's feels like he's getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. The investigators travel to San Diego to question a guy by the name of James Russell Bishop. He was a former Waco resident who moved to California last August. He was in jail uh, for charges of attempted murder, rape, and kidnapping. The reason that the investigators went to California is possible similarities between the California case and the Waco 3 murders. At the time of his arrest in California, do you want to know what he was driving? A white pickup that was similar to the one that was seen in Cohen Park where the people Mm. that were picnicking, remember?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So in March,
0: the DA announces that he's going to start a task force. Oh, okay. And he wants to take a new look at the Waco 3. He basically calls Simons and says, you're the lead task force. Like, I've, I heard what happened with Spence and what he said. I need you off the jail and back on the force. Like, you've gotten enough evidence. You've played deputy sheriff enough. I need you back on the, on the force. Mm-hmm. So Simons starts to work on Gilbert Melendez, who had served time in the 70s for assault with intent to murder. And he had been given seven years after pleading guilty to a sexual abuse case. Spence had been found guilty that month, just a couple of days prior, uh, and given 99 years because of the sexual abuse that him, Melinda, did. These some
1: shady, shady dudes. Why were so, they ever out to begin with?
0: He had to stay in jail, and then would get would have to give Simon's information on the way any any questions he had on the Waco three, because he's not gonna get out. I mean, he's mm-hmm. got 99 years. So at this point, even if he did admit to the murders, what does he have to lose? I mean, he's gonna be in jail the rest of his yeah, life. Yeah, that's true. Gilbert denied any involvement in the in the Lake murders. He said he never he never did it. Um, he began to admit he was there and stated he would testify against Spence to avoid death penalty but wouldn't give any testimony so he's like I want a lawyer I'll testify against him but I'm not going to tell you what I know just I'll see you in court basically Mm -hmm. so Simons basically tells him if you don't want the death penalty you got to talk that's how the plea works you don't get to hold all your information in your head till then I need to know now so he starts talking he's like don't talk Let me go get my tape recorder. (laughs) So he goes and gets his tape recorder to get Melendez's testimony. And this is what Gilbert Melendez says. He states that he and Spence have been riding around in Spence's car, drinking, smoking, listening to music, and they pull up to Cohen Park. And there were some kids that Spence saw, and he said that the two girls enticed him a little bit. They looked very enticing. Mm -hmm. So he tried to convince the girls to get in the truck with him, if he would, they would. He would drive him around and give him beer and let him smoke weed, in his truck. Little did he realize when the girls walked towards the truck, so did Kenneth, which he didn't realize at first. And mm-hmm. he's like, "We're gonna have to get rid of this guy because there's only two girls and there's only two of us." Yeah. So he said that they drove to Bleagleville Park, on the other side of the lake, and that Spence raped and stabbed Jill. Then he raped and stabbed Raylene and made Kenneth watch while he was tied up oh, and then man. killed Kenneth and
1: then dumped them closer to the lake. So, but that, the evidence doesn't back that up because there's not enough blood evidence at the park. Well, he said that, that they, that... they
0: left the park, but he doesn't say where they go. He says they left the park and they were driving and then he, they got out. Spence raped them both while Kenneth watched. And then, then went back to the park. Then they, then they dropped him at Spiegelville Park. And then they went home. That's what he says happened. But again, just like what you said, there were some inconsistencies to the testimony. Like Spence's car, um, Gilbert states that they were in a station wagon, which is impossible because Spence bought a station wagon two weeks after the murders. So there's Mm. no way they could have been in a station wagon that hadn't been purchased yet. Right. At the time, he had a truck, a white truck. Oh so, a white truck. A white as well. truck. So there really isn't any way he could have been in a station wagon. And even like there's a picture that I'll post. It doesn't even really look like a station wagon.
1: Because when you say station wagon, I think the Griswold
0: mm-hmm. family truck stuff. That's what I think. And right? it's like it's like, like a mini version of that. So Simons went back to one of the inmates, asked him, like, is there any way that you can find out about Cohen Park and Spliegoville Park? Like, could you just Find some ideas, just throw the names out there and see what happens. Because these timelines aren't really adding up. Mm -hmm. He thought maybe, well, their drug and alcohol addictions, maybe their memories are spotty. And so they're trying to fill in blanks that don't make sense. Then towards the end of Melinda's statement, he noticed that he was blaming everything on Spence. Like Melinda's was just like standing there watching, but he didn't participate. And when he asked him, well, did you help the girls? Like, were they screaming? Were they crying? Were they asking for help? And he's like, I don't know. I was smoking a blunt. Like, you didn't hear anything over the... Well, we know Jill has a defensive wound on her hand. So clearly she was trying to defend herself. But then he... So then he took two polygraph tests. And the questions they asked him were if he was involved. And he failed, stating that he was involved. So he easily answered them, but he was involved. So then he recants his testimony thinks he can go home and they send him to jail. (laughs) And he just doesn't understand why he has to go to prison if he didn't do anything wrong. Because he thinks he passed with flying colors when clearly he did not. There was deception. Yeah, April the 8th of 1983. So Simon's receives a visit from Ned Butler, who's the ADA, who tells Simon he just walks up to him, makes eye contact with him and says, soon. (laughs) And walks away. And he he knows what that means. So later on that day, Butler calls him in and says, it's time. So he goes to the courthouse and Butler has, he is described as having a giant smile on his face (laughs) because he was a big believer in forensic odontology, which is for those that don't know is the study of bite marks. He had solved a violent crime in Amarillo where the killer bit his victims. And when Butler first saw the Waco three, He asked, did you check the bodies for bite marks? And after studying the autopsy photos, he requested for them to blow up certain parts of the bodies. For example, both girls' nipples apparently have been bitten off. They also had bite marks on their stomachs that from a distance just looked like stab wounds. They weren't stab wounds. They were bite marks. So when the pictures were blown up, Butler was able to tell that these were indeed bite marks. He requests a mold of Spence's teeth and requests for the photos to be sent to a forensic odontologist in Albuquerque who found it was his teeth.
1: Why didn't they do bite marks of anybody else? Were they sure it was, they were that sure that it was Spence? Like they didn't get any from Gilbert?
0: Well, yeah. and well, I think they could tell by looking at his, and who Spence was and yeah. how he bragged about the murders. That most likely he was the main perpetrator. Especially Gilbert. think if it didn't
1: match, they would have continued with other people.
0: Um, Simon and Butler jump, literally jump for joy in the room (laughs) when they show that they match. So now we have a new suspect added to the trio. So David Spence, Gilbert Melendez, and? Deep. Deep. Got it. Next suspect is Tony Melendez, who is Gilbert's younger (laughs) brother. He's 24 and he was wanted. For robbery and rape. Telling you, these are some
1: shady ass dudes.
0: He was taken into custody and questioned about the late case. About the Waco 3 and his brother's involvement. Thinking, well, maybe his brother told him something. He may not be involved, highly unlikely, but maybe, maybe he's not. 20 minutes into talking to him, they knew he was a part of it. Go ahead and put him in a cell. Give him time. And he, he just keeps repeating, no, I was in Bryan, Texas, painting apartments the day of the murder. That's where I was. I don't know anything. I was painting apartments. What apartments? I don't know. I was painting apartments. What color? I don't know. I was painting apartments. That was his answer answer. to everything. Surprise. He failed his polygraph. Hmm. So on November 21st of 1983, the grand jury has decided to indict Mr. Lucky, Spence, (laughs) and the Melendez brothers.
1: Not to be confused Confused with with the the Menendez Menendez brothers. brothers. Every time I read Melendez,
0: that's what I thought. (laughs)
1: That so, wasn't practice either. That was all That just happened, see?
0: Sisters. It happens. So Spence would be tried first, then Gilbert and Tony, yep. then Deeb.
1: All separately.
0: And they're each charged with three counts of capital murder, mm-hmm. Murder, and they would each stand first for the killing of Jill. Yep. I wonder why hers was first. I don't know. Maybe because they had the theory that the she was mistaken. So Spence's lawyers, Russ Hunt and Hayes Fuller, were convinced that this testimony in this charge was wrong and that Truman Simons was unorthodox for running interrogation in this jailhouse testimony and that it was just completely wrong and although forensic odontology was admissible in court there was no established science behind it and allowing testimony would be a travesty of justice.
1: There's no science behind
0: that. I'm sorry. Our teeth, they say, are like our fingerprint. Yeah. Which is why when some they find a skull, they look for dental records.
1: I mean, and there are other cases where that is damning evidence. Like, wasn't that in Ted Bundy's case, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lots of cases where that happened, and that was before this one. Mm-hmm. So it is science, idiot.
0: I know, dumb. So they decide they're gonna send motions to the FBI and the US attorney. They send a thirty-three page letter to the FBI.
1: Wait, wasn't one of these attorneys fresh out of school?
0: No, that was um, Spence's court appointed for the sexual abuse case my that bad. he got ninety-nine years for. Okay, okay, I'll shut up. And in the letter it states an innocent man has been charged with the crime and is very likely going to be convicted in state court and sentenced to death. Oh my god. They were ignored. So five days prior to his trial, Tony Melendez pleads guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Okay, so he's the weak one. So Simons had visited him in jail, and the inmate broke down. And in a written confession, he stated he participated with Spence and Gilbert in raping and killing the teens. We know now for sure that those girls were probably raped more than once, unfortunately. So November 25th of 1983, Deeb is arrested... You want to know where he was arrested at? DeVry Institute in Dallas.
1: Oh, that's right. I read that. Where
0: he attended school on a U.S. government grant. So our taxpayers were paying for that limp deeb <laughs> to go to DeVry University Killer. while he was killing people.
1: The Can damn you imagine that? Like you have no no clue that this guy sitting next to you killed some people. Killed and raped people. That's scary as shit. I have some quotes from your Faisal guy. So he says that uh, Kenneth, Jill, and Raylene had hopes, dreams, and plans for the future, just like anybody else. They had friends and loving families. Now all that is left of Jill, Raylene, and Kenneth are memories, the grief of parents and friends, and an obligation on our part to bring their killers to justice. Most of the details in this case of the brutal crime will come out in pre-trial proceedings and during the trial, but there is an issue of mistaken identity involved. It seems the children were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. November 25th, 1983, Deeb took the stand on his own behalf to ask the court to lower his bond to 2500 Judge George Allen lowered the $200,000 bond, but then added another 200000 for each indictment against him. <laughs> so not only did he not lower it, he's like, oh, you want me to change it? I'll change it for you. Let me just add some more money on here. You're not he's, going anywhere. He's a salty He second. might be slightly salty. And so the other reason that they're raising the bond so high is they're worried that if he gets out of jail, he'll go buy a plane ticket and fly back to his home country and there won't be anything that they can do right. about it, right? So they really are worried about that. So that's why they keep raising it. Deeb's attorney, Michael McDougall, you have <laughs> that right? Mm-hmm. Um, he argued that the state had not provided evidence... That would indicate guilt of his client or reason for the high bond. So he suggested that a $100,000 bond would be adequate, but the judge did not change it. In January of 84, Dick Kettler and David Cherry will have to remain attorneys for Gilbert Melendez. Both attorneys filed motions to withdraw from the case. Uh, Kettler's reasons were the fact that he had prosecuted Melendez when he was assistant DA and was currently representing a client who might be called as a witness, as mm-hmm. well as himself. Uh, and then David Cherry said he was incompetent to handle a first-degree murder charge because he had never represented a client on a murder charge. But I think they declined, so they had to continue.
0: February 10th of 1984, the defense states that the charges against Deeb should be dismissed. Would you like to know oh my for gosh. what reason? Because, because he, he's a foreigner? It has something to do with that, yeah. That's terrible. I hate to be right about that. Because he was being mistreated because they were serving him pork, which was not okay for him to eat.
1: Because they don't eat country, it. You're in jail. Um, Don't come to America and kill our people. Well, there are other things on your plate. Eat some damn bread. So they honestly think that they're going
0: to get this dismissed because he can't eat pork, and they basically say... They don't
1: give a shit in no. prison.
0: they're like... Eat it or don't. Yeah. Or put money on your books and go buy something from the snack shop. Yeah. And hope it's all made with pork. So obviously it was denied.
1: That is stupid.
0: And then in April 6th of 1984, the defense attorneys, or they're quarter pointed. So they they have to find their defense is so minimal. Number one, they obviously aren't the best lawyers because they're either brand new because they don't have the experience behind them. Or right they, well
1: I just read that, that yeah they both tried to withdraw right, right. so we know they're not very so competent
0: they feel like they have nothing to go on that they're they want more money so <laughs> they go to the judge and they say we need a hundred thousand dollars between us so fifty thousand dollars eat for each of us in order to To complete this case. Because with what we make and the time it's taking to defend our people properly, we need more money. And the judge is like, you've already been given $1,500 for each defendant. So that's $3,000 right there. And whenever you've used all of that, which I'm sure you haven't, then I'll give you more. Wow. So. I'm surprised they let them continue. I mean. So that he ended up giving them (laughs) $7,000 more for each so they end up getting fourteen thousand dollars more but he said it would be given throughout the time that they spend throughout the course and so he said you know based from now until when i think the trial should be finished i'll space it out and they were so
1: mad you just thought they were going to get 50 grand right there like yeah. the judge was like oh here's your check it doesn't work that way no because when you, they know that you know, when you work for
0: a law firm you have
1: paralegals that
0: do all the dirty work for you but when you're a court-appointed attorney and you're either brand new or you don't know what you're doing you're kind of lost so they want they at least feel like they they're probably working 24 7 not eating not sleeping right they're trying they're probably researching trying to figure out how to defend how these to be an ups. attorney you think
1: they were googling it every <laughs> night <laughs>
0: how to keep my client from dying? maybe they
1: should give uh my cousin Vinny a call.
0: <laughs> um so then a month later the defense goes to the judge and says we want a change of venue because mcclellan county is too saturated too much is going on so that's the judge, i think the that's judge fairer. is like you know we haven't even started collecting the juries yet so when it becomes a problem we'll get there but you want to know why i think they asked for a change of venue why because then the trial would take longer and they'd and then have more, more time money. to
1: get their Googling done. And oh, they'd, they'd get, get, more get more money. <laughs> money.
0: <laughs> that's what I bad. think. Because he only factored until the trial ended in McClellan County. But if they had to end up moving it, then that's going to
1: take longer. They're going to need money. more money, more time. them more time to finish reading their research books, to phone a friend. Do whatever they can. Defense lawyers for dummies. Yeah, can
0: I take a quick how to like how to quick murder course at the McLellan County Community College? June eighteenth of nineteen eighty four, Spence Spence's trial begins at McLellan County because you know he judge was not going to move not it. Was, moving that
1: shit anywhere.
0: So people were all over the courthouse. Of course, they, they said were. that people it's pretty typical people slept outside of the courthouse just to be the first to get in. There were people standing in the hallways, people stood in the aisles, people were sitting on the floor. Does that happen
1: everywhere, or is it just Texas? small Texas towns? I don't I know. Mean, people... Waco's not as small as some of the other ones that we've covered. It's probably the bigger one. Listeners that don't live in Texas,
0: can you weigh in on this? Yeah. And we... we're sorry,
1: Waco. We love you. So, the relatives
0: of the victims sat together with members of the DA office, but it's sad that Raylene's family chose not to attend the trial and refused to comment on the trial or the case. Like, I understand you went through this awful, I can't even imagine how awful it is to not only have your child ripped away from you, but in such a graphic, brutal way. Mm-hmm. But this is how she gets justice, is seeing the people that... I would that, damn sure be
1: there every day, right too. there, so he would have to look at me right Abs- in the eye, absolutely. and I would be glaring a hole through his soul. Well, and
0: they give they give the family a chance to say what they want to say.
1: I you don't know, they know if I could you- keep my composure. They'd have to oh, chain yeah. me down, because I'd mm-hmm. want to, like, Just beat the living shit out of him. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I don't... I mean, that's your way of getting justice. Just hearing Mm -hmm. it on the news isn't enough for me. I want to look at you and watch you cower in fear or hope that maybe you're in fear. And I want to be able to stand up in front of the people and look you straight in the eye and tell you what I think of you. Yeah. Even if it doesn't bother you, it's closure for me. Because I lost someone I love by your hands. Yeah. But
1: everybody's different. That's true. I mean, they don't seem like a very... Public people, because like I said, most of the stuff that I read, the articles that had quotes in there or, or that were quoted was mainly Kenneth Frank's dad. Jill's brother, Brad, mm-hmm. had refused
0: her request for a ride to Waco on the day of her disappearance.
1: Yeah, he felt And bad. he was
0: so distraught and so full of rage that Simons pulled him aside and said, I am fearful that you're going to do something to Spence mm-hmm. as soon as you see him because you don't know how you're going to react. So he made him promise to behave before he went in. And he (laughs) said, if at any time you feel like you're going to lose your cool, you need to step out. Because you doing that could ruin everything. And your sister will get no justice. So you got to remain calm.
1: For your sister.
0: Correct. Uh, Jill's mother, Nancy, was scheduled to be the first witness. And she, which I think this would be you or me, if God forbid this ever happened to us. Um, she forced herself to study the crime scene photos oh, as a gosh. way of bracing herself for the gruesome details she would hear in the testimony and that she would see when she was on the stand she did not want to look weak to that the man that mm-hmm. took her daughter yep so she wanted that's what he wants she to see. wanted to be able to sit there and look at them and know that as far as he could tell, They didn't bother her, and he didn't win. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that's something I could see Carrie or myself doing. Yep, for sure. Is saying, you know, I want to know every detail of what happened. So, number one, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. You don't catch me off guard and completely ruin me emotionally on the stand. So um, she requested to be last so that she could really focus on preparing herself outside the courtroom before she had to go in. So Frank's father takes the stand. Yes.
1: So he says that... um, He does verify that he and his son had eaten hamburgers at 6.30 on July 13th. Mm -hmm. Um, He said that Jill had called twice to talk to Kenneth. And when they did talk, she asked him to meet her at Cohen Park. But he told his son he couldn't have his car. And so the girls came to pick Kenneth up and Raylene's orange pinto between 7.30 and 8 p.m. And at this point, he's choking back tears because they asked him to identify a picture of Kenneth and Jill for the jury. And like you said, he is quoted as saying, Kenneth had been in love with Jill and had given her promise ring. Then she moved back to Waxahachie to live with her mother, and he, had, he was unhappy about that. Um, he asked them to be in by 12 because, he, again, he was in summer school and having trouble. Uh, He couldn't miss another day of school. He said that was the last time I saw him. I went to bed at 1.30 a.m. and couldn't sleep. He said I checked his room at 4 a.m. and he wasn't home, so I got in my car to go look for him. Uh, I felt something bad. He said he felt something bad had happened. So he went to Cohen Park first and saw the Pinto parked there. Um, He said he looked inside with the flashlight, but he didn't search inside because he was afraid he would leave fingerprints, and I could see us being the same way. Um, he said, I knew it was the same car because it had a, a Waxahachie High School uh, sticker on the window. So then he drove to Midway Park and saw a car with lights on and windows broken out and reported it to the police through a CB radio operator. The police came and um, he said, I told him I was looking for my son, but the cop said, don't worry about them. They're probably out partying. So then he said he called Pat Torres. I'm not sure who Pat Torres is. I think you he's know? just
0: a, f- a friend. A family friend a family of friend them. And I think they had a child, whether it be a boy or girl, that knew Kenneth. That okay, may maybe that's why. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So he said he called them at 5 a.m. And he said that Pat told them to check with Patty Dyes, who was a girl that lived with Gail Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he then went back to Cohen Park. And he said, "Um, I knew Kenneth loved Jill and I didn't know her parents, but I wanted to let them know. So I checked the car again to see if I could find Raylene's number and he did. He found a telephone number in there in the glove compartment and called her parents. He called them and said, it looks like they have been abducted and I felt cold chills down my spine. So then he went home and called the police and they told me again that they were probably all sleeping off a drunk. So they found the car in the morning. But still. I mean, do you not want to do your off job that they, Yeah, exactly. go looking for well, these and teens? So this tells you, this, go, and you think about earlier we were talking about how they wanted to close the park. And that the councilwoman was saying, well, the police are doing a really good job monitoring the park. Well, it sounds like to me they kind of stopped doing it because it's just like, well, it's just a bunch of teenagers drinking and, and partying. Just leave them alone. They'll be fine. So it sounds like they didn't really go there that often because they just let them do whatever they wanted to do. He said, they kept telling me they would show up and I became angry. And then they told me that I couldn't check out a missing persons report for 24 hours. He said, I called everyone I knew trying to find something out. Throughout Mr. Frank's entire testimony, his mother sat in the courtroom and just kept wiping tears from her eyes. He just kept saying he knew something terrible happened because when he went back to the Pinto... He found his son's motorcycle keys and house keys in the back seat. This part almost made me cry. He said he found the keys of his son's motorcycle and, and house keys in the, in the back seat. And he said, we had quarreled recently over him losing his keys. And I told him if he ever felt he was in trouble to leave his keys behind. It makes so me want to cry. Sad. I know I'm, I'm on the verge of crying. And so they questioned him about his drive through the park. And he said, I was so scared. I did not know what I would do if I found anything. I can't imagine. But I would be the same way. I would be driving and driving and driving. I mean, someone would probably have to make me stop and physically remove me. Because I don't think I would give up until I mm-hmm. found. Mm-hmm. Even though I'd be afraid of what I might find, I would rather. I, I just don't think I would ever give up. No, I wouldn't I'm too hard-headed. And then the next witness, Dorothy Miles. She was a neighbor of Spence, whom he called Mom. She testified that he told her several weeks later, I think I killed somebody. She said he seemed depressed when he visited her and was kind of deep in thought, unlike the jolly carefree person she had known since 1976. She said Spence returned to her home in the second week of August in 82, and she said... He was very, very down in the dumps and wouldn't talk very much and said that he had done something bad.
0: So prosecution, so so Faisal claims that Deeb hired Spence and the Melendez brothers to kill Gail Kelly Kelly for money, but Spence and the brother mistakenly killed Jill because she looked like Kelly. That's the main motive that the prosecution's going for. And they killed Kenneth and Raylene to prevent them from talking, Right. So, prosecution calls 39 witnesses, and he states in his opening statement, evidence will show that David Wayne Spence not only bragged repeatedly that he was responsible for the murders, but he had details about how the murders were committed. Seven jailhouse inmates took the stand. One testified that Spence told him, yeah, I bit off Jill's nipple just like that.
1: Oh, my God. God, really? Another
0: stated Spence told him that when he saw the teenagers, in quotes, there's the motherfucker that beat that Iranian on a drug deal. Let's go get him and fuck him up. Another claim that Spence told him he had sexually assaulted the girls with a whoopee stick. A what? A whoopee stick. What the hell is a
1: whoopee stick?
0: Which could explain why they may have been assaulted but not raped.
1: It, oh, and that's why there wasn't any like semen or anything like yeah, that.
0: Yeah, or lube or anything at all. Yeah.
1: Good Lord.
0: Inmates denied receiving anything in return for testimony. No lowering their sentences, nothing like that. Just, they just told them what they knew. Several others reported suspicious remarks Spence had made about raping two girls at the lake and about being scared that he may have also killed someone. One stated they heard Deeb ask Spence if he knew of someone who could get rid of Kelly for a share of insurance money. And Spence volunteered. He was not coerced. He said, I'll do it. You need help? Right here. The prosecution was very worried much of their case because it was mainly hearsay and circumstantial. The only damning evidence really scientifically was the bite marks. marks.
1: Obviously, we already talked about how Deeb liked Kelly, but there are some other things. He helped her financially. He provided her transportation to Dallas when she ran away from the Methodist home. He rented an apartment for her to live in, which she did before moving in with a friend. She relied on him financially, so that even... I mean, if he already liked her before, I think maybe he thought there was an obligation
0: there. Maybe that's how he was able to maybe prove that he was the husband. If he could say, well, this is where she's living and I'm paying for Oh, yeah, that's
1: true. I'm paying for her rent and Mm -hmm. that makes sense.
0: So whenever the odontologist Campbell took the stand... He used electronically enhanced autopsy photos and he testified that Spence was the only individual to a reasonable and dental certainty who could have bitten those women. There's no other way another person could have done it. And so defense attorneys called their own expert witness who said the quality of the photos were too poor to make a valid comparison. Just to contradict what the other one and said. And I
1: didn't find any pictures of the like the the, the bot marks or anything no, like that to even see if they... He
0: say. he he couldn't say whether Spence was or wasn't the biter. So if the photos are too bad to make a comparison, then couldn't you say there's no way to tell who the biter is? Yeah. He can't really. I mean, he can't. I mean, he does say he can't tell whether it is or isn't. But if the photos are too bad, then wouldn't you say there's no way to know who did it? Yeah. Because we can't make you know.
1: If you can't say it is, then you can't say it isn't. So the some of the
0: jurors said that later. In the jury room, when they went to deliberate, there was a life-size picture of the marks and the cast of David Spence's teeth in the jury room. The testimony that Campbell gave was that everyone's bite mark is just like a fingerprint. It's unique enough that you can tell. So when they went in to deliberate, there's his molding and it matches up perfectly with the enhanced bite marks that they um, made bigger so that they could see. So the defense really tried its best. (laughs) Those poor guys. They really, really tried. They were screwed from Um, the beginning. They stated none of the blood or hair on the bodies or around the bodies was his. And they insisted that Deeb had been joking when he was asking to get rid of Kelly and he knew Spence wouldn't actually do it. And they stated that um, Spence knew Kelly, so the mistaken identity doesn't make sense. Which does kind of throw a wrench in it, but at the same time... If he's drunk or high, mm-hmm. and they look that similar, and it's nighttime, how would he really know? That's true. You know?
1: I don't uh, know what this park looks like and how well lit it is at night. So if they, if other people that worked with them and went, were at the Methodist home with them confused them, that it would be very easy to confuse them at night when you're intoxicated or on meth.
0: Right. So defense called an insurance salesman to the stand to explain what type of insurance policy was on Kelly. And it was actually the kind used to cover employees in the case of accidents in the workplace. So the dummy <laughs> was not so lucky because even though she was killed, he, even though there was a gap between the time he was arrested and all that, he wasn't able to cash it in because he didn't get the right policy. She didn't die at work. <laughs> and it wasn't a death policy. It was an accidental injury policy. That he took out on her. What a dumbass. Because she was an employee there. So that's why it was like 20 grand. (laughs) Because it was only for injuries, dummy. That DeVry
1: Institute didn't help him very much. Well, he was just preoccupied with everything that he had done the previous weekend. So it was hard to concentrate, right? Defense brings up our Mr.
0: James Bishop, Mm -hmm. the former resident of Waco, who moved to California right after the murders and had been arrested for raping and attempting to kill two high school girls on a beach and Ronnie Brighton, who was a man who had been seen in bloody clothes after a night of fishing at the lake, the night of the murders, but the judge ruled evidence was irrelevant to the case and refused to allow it. So that man that had the bloody clothes, not only did they not take his clothes into evidence, they refused to take testimony from him and from Bishop.
1: Why? So even if
0: they came forward and said, yes, I did it and could prove it, The judge didn't want to hear their testimony and threw him out. That's salty right there. So, uh, trial lasted two... So,
1: we don't know anything about that guy or anything? He went.
0: That's it. That's all he... He was a blip on the radar. That was it. So, the trial lasts two weeks. Closing arguments. uh, Faisal reminds jurors of the substantial testimony against Spence and the pain of the the victims and the families and the torture that the teens endured. Yeah. Faisal ends with, folks, it has been two years... And there are a lot of people who have been waiting for your decision, so make the right one. So 12 jurors found Spence guilty in less than two hours. As the verdict was read, Spence started to solemnly cry, and a gasp went up in the courtroom when it was finished. His mother, Juanita White, burst into tears, and three days later he was given the death penalty. Jill's mother stated... And I quote, we feel the angels have been with us every day. Jurors requested to meet the great investigator, Truman
1: Simons.
0: (laughs) And so the DA brought him in and said, ladies and gentlemen, I thank God for men like Truman Simons and so should you. Because really, I mean, a lot of this evidence would not have, if he had not consistently stayed persistent Mm -hmm. with knowing that Spence was the one who was responsible it but that's happened. how he was
1: with all of his cases. I mean, there's a giant write-up on. Actually, there are several Texas Monthly articles on this case, and one of them was really good. But there's just so much content there. We would this would have to be a five-parter if we included every single thing we read. But it was really unique in the way they laid it out. It was by the from the perspective of. Mr. Simons and then it was a from a different perspective from the district attorney and there's like four or five different stories in there from the perspective of that person. So it's really good but Mm -hmm. and some of the content we have is from that article too.
0: So back to what you were saying about how good his intuition is. Yep. A week after the trial ends Simons just feels like I need to go back to the lake. There's something at the lake that I need to see. So he asked one of his investigator friends um with the DA office to to go with him. So they go to Cone Park and they go over to where the crime scene was and they're walking around and about 25 yards from the spot where Tony said that Jill was murdered, Simon just became overcome with this strong feeling that there's something in this area. So he takes a stick and moves stuff around. And he starts digging in the dirt and he finds a gold bracelet.
1: <gasps> what? So I he takes the
0: bracelet to Jill's mother. And says, "Have you seen this?" And she drops to her knees, and she's like, "That's Jill's." So, like, a piece of her was calling him to like. That's
1: why he was so good. That gives me chills, Mm -hmm. because that's what he was saying is that he, when he would go to a crime scene, he could kind of feel and visualize, not really visualize, but he could kind of feel that there was something intuition, Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So then, so then Gilbert Melendez contacts the DA. And says, you know, I have news on Spence. I heard that he got off a death row. And now I want to make a deal before my trial because I don't want to be on death row. And even though he was on death row, Spence Mm -hmm. did not get off death row. He was on death row. So in January of 1985, he wrote a 16-page confession pleading guilty for two life sentences and agreed to testify against Deep, which is what they needed. Right. Because Spence still said he was innocent. So they have no corroborating witness stating that what happened is what happened yep so february 25th of 1985 deeb's trial goes on it lasts 12 days 40 witnesses some of the same testified against spence testified in his trial one jailhouse inmate stated the murders um and that spence had said deeb would pay him five thousand dollars for killing kelly like five grand Because he's only getting 20 for this accidental workplace, idiot. Oh, my God. I can't (laughs) believe it. So, during closing arguments at his trial, the DA showed that the store owner uh, had, had his dirty hands in the killing, and he was found guilty also in less than two hours and given the death penalty. And eight months later, in October of 1985, was Spence's second trial was for Kenneth's murder. So, the DA relied on the murder for hire, and thanks to Truman Simons... He had this new evidence of the gold bracelet. They were able to use that. So Tony flips on Spence, Tony Melendez, and mm-hmm. says, you know, he'll, he gets on the stand. And he said he and Spence and his brother killed the teens at Cohen Park, loaded the bodies into Gilbert's truck.
1: The white truck.
0: The white truck. So Spence had a truck as well, but there he's saying it was Gilbert's truck. And during the trial, Spence was very irritated with the DA, who enjoyed provoking him. So he was getting... Mm-hmm. He was. I mean, he was. He just saw himself get buried in the first trial, and now it's happening all over again. Mm-hmm. Just a different person. So during jury selection for Spence's ex-lawyer, the one previous, uh, questioned potential jurors that the DA passed him taunting quotes. <laughs> so... When he was passing him notes? So the DA while they were doing jury selection, was sending him little notes. One of them said, you're drowning and your life cards don't swim. (laughs) So um, Spence had two new attorneys, Walter Reeves, who represented him at the sexual abuse case. We know how well that went. Mm -hmm. And Bill Vance, who grew increasingly agitated. So he fired both of his lawyers. And he said, I'm really getting tired of this shit, as he whispered to his father before he was being sent to Huntsville. So he was so done, which is his own fault, but yep. he was getting he got tired of in that shit. So, I don't feel so sorry for him. at the end of this, uh, D.A. Faisal and Simons were considered heroes in McClellan County. It took three years, but the killers were behind bars forever. <clears throat> so Simons became one of the most well-respected officers in Texas. Two years later, he would earn Texas Peace Officer of the Year Award. Uh, Jill's family. This is so sweet. So Jill's family had not put up a marker yet for her. And her dad, Rod, owned a granite company and cut tombstones for a living. But he was so devastated with the grief of losing his daughter that he couldn't bring himself yeah, to make that, one. How hard? I mean, can you imagine making one? I mean, that's what you do. But can you imagine, like, even what I do? Like, I have, I would have a hard time cutting someone or doing something. To one of my kids that I do at work. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it just would be harder for me. You know, because the attachment's there. Simon's orders one. Has it decorated? Has it installed? With a photo and a poem with the inscription, Forever 17. Oh,
1: I saw a picture of that. With and the has it 17. put up. So
0: now, her dad is not burdened didn't with that. You have to
1: do it. Everybody's happy. Right. Everybody's at peace now. She has a marker. You know because how we felt. Because you do. I was going to say that you, you want... Like I remember when we'd go visit dad mm-hmm. and it was just a little, we're like, okay, we know he's right here. Um, and every time I went and the marker wasn't there, I just always felt so bad. Mm-hmm. But once it was there, it's like, okay, now, now it's official. Now, you know, you don't ever. You get like the full closure. Well, and not only that, you worry about, do I have the spot wrong? Uh, luckily where dad is, there's a tree. So it's mm-hmm. impossible to be off, but it just, there's closure. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's really, really sweet. It's very sweet. So in 1993, Deeb is acquitted. Son of a bitch. And he's given a retrial in Fort Worth, which is a bunch of BS. Mm -hmm. And then in 1997, Spence is executed. And you want to know what his last words were? Tell me. I've read them, but I would like to hear them again. He says, yes, I do, to having last words. First of all, I want you to understand I speak the truth when I say I didn't kill your kids. Honestly, I've not killed anyone. I wish you could get the rage from your hearts out and you could see the truth and get rid of the hatred. I love you all. And he names his children. This is very important. I love y'all and I'll miss y'all. Okay, now I'm finished. Now kill me. So he's gone. In 1998, Gilbert Melendez dies of HIV complications in jail. Karma's a bitch, ain't it? But another karma is that Deeb dies of cancer in 1999. So even though he was acquitted, which I don't know how he was acquitted, I couldn't find a lot I couldn't find any that.
1: either. I did read that, and it pissed me off, but I don't know.
0: So this is where, this, this puts an interesting spin on the end of the case. I know we kind of talked about our opinions mm-hmm. on this. So in May of 2011, the last living murderer, Tony Melendez, is begging for new DNA because it's now 2011. This happened in the 80s. Lots has happened. And so he's begging them to test the DNA of the shoelaces because he's stating, if I was truly a part of this and I did what they said I did, I was there, but I didn't do any of this, then my DNA is going to be on the shoelaces because I...
1: Should be somewhere, right? Well,
0: all that's left in the evidence box is the shoelaces and a few strips of towel and the bra. He wants all of it tested with DNA Mm -hmm. and he wants to prove that he didn't do it. If testing were to show he was innocent, Spence was already executed.
1: So, Gilbert's already dead.
0: If Spence has been executed unlawfully, we have a really, we have the first person in Texas that's been lethally injected unlawfully and we took his life and we got the wrong person. So, That's a giant error. Mm -hmm. So the family of the victims obviously were upset because they felt the right men were behind bars and they didn't want this testing to be
1: done. Right, but there wasn't any really true physical evidence to tie them to any of it. That's true. They were confessions and they did know some details that only the murderers would have known, but there was no physical evidence tying them to it. And just
0: like the DA said, I was worried because our case was based on circumstance Mm -hmm. and hearsay.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So Simon said... I'm not worried, the case will stand on its own. And when they asked him, he goes, it's all BS. Anyone that can read the trial transcripts would have known better and wouldn't give this story the time of day.
1: So did they test it?
0: So DNA starts testing, which had already been testing for the last two years. So it started in 2009. Testing is expensive. And in 2008, Governor Rick Perry arranged by the DA's ex-wife, so Faisal's ex-wife and Rick Perry, worked together to start the Innocence Project at UT Austin. Mm-hmm. And they, the group spent $4,500 in state money. And they wanted to hire a California lab in April of 2009 because they felt like they're, they're ahead of they're us advanced. when it comes to DNA. So if we use Texas, we're not doing him any justice. So let's use California. Because we closed
1: down the 4th of July, y'all.
0: We ain't got time.
1: We ain't got time. (laughs) They want the
0: shoelaces that bound Kenneth to show proof that for sure he did it. A year later, in September of twenty twelve, DNA is stalled. So the judge (laughs) calls scientist Alan Kell, who is the one who's doing this DNA testing in California.
1: He's the only one it's only one person. He he's
0: the one who's in charge of this Okay. specific uh case you know because when they do the like there's a certain order that it goes through people and you have to sign it out and this person Mm -hmm. takes it and then this person keeps it till the next step so he's it's in his possession
1: got it
0: he basically he's requested to appear in court in waco and bring all the evidence with him and he has to be there by november 16th of 2012 two months away so alan calls the judge and basically says i don't have enough usable results there's not enough. The DNA that I have found on the shoelaces really isn't enough to say yes or no, whether it is or isn't Melinda's DNA. The amount of science and time and resources it's going to take to get the right answer, I, we don't have. If you want to sp- give us thirty grand, we can finish it and we can give you a written report and tell you our findings. So <laughs> the Texas judge gets very mad. Right. And he calls him back and says, how long does it take to write a $35,000 report? They must have a lot of broken pencils. <laughs> so Alan Kell contacts him back and basically says, our contract states that you have to pay us for the testing process, which you did. But you haven't paid us for the results. And until you pay us for the results, we're not going to give it to Why you. Why do we use a we California don't... lab? Why don't we just use a Texas lab? Because California was ahead of us in DNA testing. But
1: they're charging us... And so so they basically said we're
0: not going to spend that much money. So unless somebody wants to donate thirty-five grand to California, we're not going to get the results. So then, in January of twenty seventeen, Mister Tony Melendez dies in prison on prison hospice, and privacy guidelines did not give his cause of death. The whole time, I believed that David Spence did it. I mean, it just made perfect sense. But this, this irked me a little bit. I kind of wonder, like, those two other men, how do we know that they didn't do it? I mean, the mistaken identity makes sense. Like, I can make it stick. But it also is very random. So how do we know that these two other guys, one that was a Waco resident and happened to just leave and go to the other side of the country after he kills three people... And this other one who was covered in blood, not fish blood, human blood. And they didn't even... And they didn't question. even want their information. How do we know that they weren't part of it? Because now you have, if that DNA ever were to come out, someone were to pay that money, because they can't destroy evidence. If they ever t- ever get the results of that and it shows that it wasn't Tony Melendez's... How is
1: that even legal? How is it even legal for California to do that?
0: Because their sitting, contract says you have but, to pay for a written report, and they didn't pay for the written report. That is such bullshit. That's why going I'm to sorry. jail, going to court costs so much money. Because basically, they paid the forty five hundred dollars, right? And they right. basically retained this lab, mm-hmm. and whatever contract they signed with this lab, it said in the in the contract that it will release a written report detailing the testing process and the results. The amount will add up to anywhere from no less than $15,000 to no greater than $35,000. So they're charging them the max. Right. And why are they doing that? Are they doing it because they know, are they helping
1: Texas? Or is Texas saying like, oh yeah, you should get, I mean. Well, if he's already, if he starts his sentence with, there's not enough DNA on the shoelaces to prove otherwise, why would you go forward with it? Well, I
0: well, I think that's why he's saying if I get more funding, I can do other tests that are more expensive, and I might be able to get a, a better. But sample. I may not. But I may not. But if you want this written and use it in court, you have to pay me, because my hearsay isn't gonna. I have to go there. You have to pay for my expenses to go there, sit on the on the stand, and I have to type out a written report, which is that's a lot of broken pencils. <laughs> a lot of broken pencils. <laughs> So I don't know. I so you don't if know. If this hadn't happened, I would have never second guessed it. But there's just something about if it was inconclusive, right?
1: If well, Spence did something, I mean, he the the lady that he called mom talked about how he said he did something bad. Maybe he didn't kill them. Maybe he maybe they raped them and left them, and somebody else came and murder
0: was them. also up by twenty four percent.
1: So right, how he could have killed one someone else. Maybe it wasn't them. I mean, it had to be a more than one person situation because there were three people. This is very much like the West Memphis Three where there's so many different, there's so many different avenues and everybody that was involved was shady to begin with. So it was really easy to believe that they were involved. I, while I was researching the case, I really did think Spence did it, but he, he never really completely admitted. He kept saying he did something bad. He felt like he killed somebody he was depressed and all that. And I think maybe some of the confessions he did, he actually said, I, I think I did. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't remember. I mean, but even he remembers being at the park and talking about how attractive they were and how, so was all that made up or, I mean, is I, I don't is, know. I think he did it. I think he did it. I think he was in on know. it somehow.
0: I mean, I, I believe it's plausible to me. I can accept it and. Be like, yeah, okay, yeah. sure. There's just something that, like I said, the best word is like it irks me. It just yeah. irks me a little bit that there's there was possibly something. Situations. Yeah, because obviously we're a giant state. What would happen to our justice system if we found out that we executed an innocent man? And it's, three well, it's
1: happened at this point. It has. Have we haven't we executed an innocent man? I don't think Maybe so. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I Sorry, know we've that. had innocent men innocent people in jail and they've been released right
0: but we've not x we've not and, taken and maybe
1: we have had innocent men that are in that are in jail and they die before they can be released i don't know i, I guess I, I should research that before i say that maybe yeah. we haven't well you said this guy was going to be the first if that were the case
0: yeah that's well that's what it said in 2012 okay. so if it's happened since then i don't know yeah but i mean just imagine if like if you know that we took someone's life without knowing 100%. I mean, it's supposed to be without a shadow of a doubt, right? Mm-hmm. That this person did it. There's no hesitation in your mind that they did well, it. Well,
1: that he detective only... knew. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And I think maybe maybe that's why it went the way it did is because he was so certain that that's what happened that he refused to let anybody else alter his story in any way. Mm-hmm
0: maybe the melendez brothers weren't maybe tony was not as much of a part of it as the other two were you know i mean i do believe there had to be more than one because
1: of they knew too that went much on. about it for them to not have done it and i mean i don't I, I don't believe the story i don't believe that they like maybe they raped them there but they had to take them somewhere else and kill them because there wasn't like what did they do with all that blood well, it, there it would have been blood make, on the ground there would have been blood everywhere
0: it would make more sense to me because um Tony Tony was the most inconsistent. It's very possible that they made Tony take Kenneth away, right? And then Gilbert, because Gilbert and Spence. Spence did some nasty shit together already. That's true. So they may have raped the girls, stabbed him and killed him, put him in the truck, took him around to the other side, and then he took Kenneth around there, right? And then then they took care of him. Maybe he just babysat Kenneth while they did what they wanted.
1: I'm not sure Deeb was involved to that point. I don't think he was there when it all happened. Do you think he was there?
0: No. And I, I think he was a little dumb and a little crazy and I don't doubt that he may have mentioned Spence, but as dumb as he was, I feel like Spence said, yeah, I'll do it. That he would have just trusted that Spence would have done it clean cut because look how dumb he was. He took out the wrong insurance policy. Mm -hmm. He didn't take out a life insurance if she dies. She got
1: accidental work i think injured. they did it and they went and told Deeb they did it which is why he started bragging and went and watched the movie and then when he saw how grossed out they were about what he was saying he was probably like oh i probably shouldn't tell people yeah. that i don't I think really, he was there because i really didn't do it but i think they did it i think um spence and gilbert did it i think tony was just like you said probably made to just do their you know do During this i drive this car or stay here. That's why he was like, well, mm-hmm. screw this. I'm going to get in the car and smoke a blunt while they do their thing. I don't want to, like, I'm d- not interested. Like, why
0: would it, you want two other people's testimony? Two very likely suspects. Why would you at least at that want that their, their the,
1: testimony? The bloody guy walking around the park gets nothing, gets, doesn't get questioned. They don't test the blood on his shirt or anything like that. hmm I think that's a wrap. Damn it. All right. Rest in peace, Jill, Kenneth, and Raylene. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.
0: Case File 08 The Waco 3 Closed